So today we're looking at chapter 27 of Matthew, verses 45 to 56. So the question we've been asking these last four weeks is how is Jesus's death on the cross the answer to the many problems that our country is dealing with today? And related to this, why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did Jesus die? And why by means of crucifixion on a cross? We've seen that the cross is a, is a full and an all-encompassing work of God's salvation and self-revelation, that it's full of power, of potency, of mystery. And this means that the question of what the cross accomplished can't be fully answered in just one way. And so as uh, Doug gave us such a great analogy last week, like a chord isn't complete unless all of the notes in it sound so likewise, there are different notes that fill out, fill out the fullness of all that the cross accomplished. And we've been looking at some of those individual notes week by week and adding them up. Uh, four ways that we've looked at in the past weeks, just to remind you, we saw first that on the cross, Jesus drank the cup, emptied the cross or emptied the cup of God's wrath so that for those who follow Jesus, God holds no anger, no punishment toward us. That cup is empty, and all that's left is God's wise and unconditional love. Then we saw, second, that Jesus loves us so much that he desired to cement a new covenant between us and him, between us and God, to establish a new committed relationship. And on the cross, he gave his own life, his own blood to secure and to seal this new unbreakable bond of love between us and God. Then third, we saw that on the cross, Jesus modeled and demonstrated what it looks like to love and even to love our enemies. And that it's this kind of humble, gentle, self-sacrificing love that is the way we're to live in the world. If we're going to follow Jesus, this is the way we're to relate to one another, whether they're friends or, and relate to others, whether they're friends or enemies, the way of the cross, the way of love, the way of service and sacrifice, which Jesus, which Jesus modeled for us and called us to follow in. And then fourth, last week, we saw that on the cross, Jesus shows us more clearly than ever before what God is like. And that God is a God who doesn't stand aloof, detached, insulated, up in heaven, above human suffering, but rather God was willing to come down and to embrace and to experience suffering and to suffer with us, even the utterly horrific suffering of crucifixion. What an amazing God. Well, today, finally, we finish our series by looking one more time at Jesus' death on the cross and asking once again what it means. Why did Jesus die and why on a cross? And why is Jesus' death on a cross good news in light of the many problems that our nation is facing? COVID, social isolation, work and school disruption, masking debates, Conspiracy theories, political divisiveness, hate crimes, riots, violence, destruction in cities and in our nation's capital. How and in what way is the good news that Jesus died on the cross the answer to any of this? 
Well, let's take a look at today's passage and see the answer that it gives. Let me start by saying that there have been certain times in history when in a single moment, everything changed forever. We still celebrate some of those days today. For example, the 4th of July. We celebrate the founding of a new nation, a grand experiment in democracy, which has had far reaching and long lasting effects for our country and for the rest of the world. Another example would be D-Day, which turned the tide of World War II in Europe, having profound implications as to who would rule Europe and what the geopolitical dynamics would be around the world. These and other moments that we could point to were crossroad moments. They were turning points in history. If they had turned out differently, our lives would be very different today. Well, as Christians, we believe that the greatest of all moments, the most significant turning point ever in the history of the world were the weekend events which are underway in today's passage, which we will celebrate in two weeks' time on Good Friday and then culminating two days later with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And today we focus in particular on the moment that Jesus died on the cross. This moment, along with the resurrection moment which followed it, was the pivot point, not just for us as Christians, but we believe, in fact, for the whole cosmos. It was the hinge point, the very turning of the ages. It's the moment on which the whole universe turned, fundamentally shifting reality forevermore. Let's take a look at our passage in Matthew 27. As we pick up the story, we find that Jesus is already hanging on a cross, and we are immediately plunged into darkness. Literally, Matthew tells us in verse 45, from noon to 3 p.m., normally the brightest part of the day, right? Darkness came over all the land. Darkness. Astronomers tell us this wasn't an eclipse because this was Passover, and the moon is always full at Passover season. And when the moon is full, you can't have a solar eclipse. Darkness. What caused the darkness? We don't know. But it certainly conveys the reality of that moment. Because in the darkness, a completely innocent man, a really, really good man, is hanging victimized and brutalized on a cruel cross. He's been unjustly and unfairly seized, charged on trumped up twisted charges. He's been beaten, his back literally ripped to shreds, blood pouring off of him, abused, mocked, stripped naked, humiliated. Thick nails pounded through his wrists and his feet and left to hang there in public until he dies an excruciating, pitiful death. Can you feel the darkness? Yet people are laughing at him. They're mocking him. They think this ultimate act of injustice and cruelty is entertaining. They're gloating about it. Humans in their twisted nature, their cruel nature, they do act this way. Can you feel the darkness? 
For the Jewish people, this was yet one more example of the oppression that they suffered continually. One more moment of feeling hopelessly, overwhelmingly at the mercy of the cruel Roman Empire. One more outrageous, unfair, shattering act of utter contempt and cruelty and abuse by their oppressors. And yet the Jews are helpless victims of it. There's nothing they can do about it. Can you feel the darkness? For Jesus's followers, they thought Jesus was going to be their savior and their Messiah from all this. The one who God had finally sent to rescue them and set them free. But instead of somehow overcoming the godless Romans and ushering in a new kingdom under God, Jesus had just become Rome's latest victim. As helpless as all the others in the end, Jesus had failed, and God hadn't done anything to help him. Can you feel the darkness? And then there's Jesus' own cry from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In retrospect, theologians argue about what this means. Was Jesus really forsaken? Was he objectively forsaken by God, or did he just feel forsaken in that moment? Well, it's nice for the theologians to argue from their comfortable studies in classrooms, but Jesus is hanging, tortured on a cross. He's crying out to God, asking God why he's been forsaken, and there is no answer. No theologian there to give an answer, and more importantly, no answer from God. God does not reassure Jesus that God is in fact there. God does not dispatch Elijah to come rescue Jesus, as some in the story think Jesus is pleading for. There was a folk religion, or in the folk religion of that time, there was this idea that Elijah was sort of God's special messenger who could come on special errands like an angel to do God's bidding. But there's no Elijah. There's no rescue. Heaven is silent. Seemingly absent, oblivious, uncaring about all that's going on beneath it. Can you feel the darkness? And then in a moment, it's all too late anyway. Jesus dies. It's too late for rescue, too late for reassurance, too late for explanation. It's over. It's finished. Jesus is dead. His life and the hope he brought have been completely snuffed out. Can you feel the darkness? Well, they say it's always darkest before the dawn. Could that be true somehow in this case? Could something good come out of Jesus' death on the cross? And if so, how? What? What good could come out of all this darkness? How could Jesus' death on a cross turn out to be good news for the world today? Well, there are lots of explanations, right? We've been looking at some of them over the past few weeks, 
And one place that people look for explanation is in the seven last words that Jesus spoke when he was hanging on the cross. These are sprinkled across the, the four gospel accounts of Jesus' death, like the one that Matthew records in our passage here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This and the other six statements of Jesus in the other gospels have made wonderful material for many sermons, many devotionals. But interestingly, one commentator, Dale Bruner, points out something that's unique about Matthew's gospel, and that is that Matthew has also told us that God had something to say about and in response to the cross. In fact, God had seven things to say, seven last words of God's own. The way God said these words was by taking action, by responding to Jesus's death on the cross. God responded in seven ways, and Matthew records these responses for us using seven verbs. And each verb is in the passive tense. A passive tense is where instead of saying, Maria hit the ball, we say, the ball was hit by Maria. And in the Bible, often when God does something, a passive verb will be used, but there's no by God at the end. Just the ball was hit. In scripture, this is called a divine passive because we're supposed to know who did it. We're supposed to know that God did it. So the author doesn't need to tell us. And starting in verse 51, Matthew gives us seven divine passives, seven actions that God took in response to Jesus's death. Before we look at them, just note in verse 51 that Matthew begins the seven by getting our attention. He says, look. Now, a lot of the older translations have behold here. And the newer ones figure people don't talk that way anymore, so they just leave it out. But the word is there in the Greek, and it means, look, pay attention, get this, behold. And then Matthew gives us God's seven last words. Here they are, follow me, starting in verse 51. First, was torn. Look, the, curtain temp the temple of the curtain was torn. Second, depending on your translation, shook or was shaken. Look, the earth was shaken. In the Greek, this is in the passive tense. Third, split or were split. Look, the rocks were split. Again, it's a passive in Greek. Fourth, broken open or were broken open. Look, the tombs were broken open. Fifth, were raised. Look, the bodies of many holy people were raised. Sixth, appeared, or again, it's passive, literally, were made to appear. Look, these raised people were made to appear in Jerusalem. And then seventh, down in verse 54, were terrified or were made afraid. Look, the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb were made afraid by all of this. Again, all seven divine passives in the original Greek, sometimes hard to translate as passives in English, but all seven were actions done by God in response to the cross. What does it all mean? Well, 
we'll see as we look at these seven in more detail in a moment, what we'll see is that in Jesus, God has drawn all of the darkness into Jesus and defeated it. Wow, let's look. First passive, was torn. Look, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. This curtain we know was a foot thick and something like 50 feet tall. And it was torn in two, not from bottom to top, the way a human would tear it, but from top to bottom. Do you realize what this means? To understand, we have to recognize what a temple is. A temple is a microcosm of the whole cosmos. It's the place where heaven meets earth. God is on the inside in heaven, and a curtain separates heaven from earth. People are on the outside where they draw close to offer sacrifices, to burn incense before the curtain, offering them up with their prayers from earth to heaven. And so do you realize in the symbolic architecture of the temple what it means when the curtain separating heaven from earth is torn? It means the separation between heaven and earth, between God and humanity, is done away with. It means Isaiah's famous prayer to God in Isaiah 64 is finally answered. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Heaven and earth, which are sins, our evilness, our rebellion, our desire to be independent of God, all that has rent that apart are now rejoined by God. We can connect with God again. We can have God among us again. Look, the way has been opened. We could spend the rest of the sermon just on this one wonderful word, but we've got six more to go. So second word. Look, the earth was shaken. Earthquakes in the Bible often signify that something big is happening, something earth shattering. And in the Old Testament prophets, earthquakes were a sign of the end times. A sign that this present age, this age of darkness, this age of evil was coming to an end and God was ushering in the beginning of a new age, an earthquake. It happens when the vast tectonic plates underneath us, which hold us up and on which our lives sit, it's when those plates shift underneath our feet. And in this case, it's the fundamental realities of the age itself in Jesus' death they begin to shift. We'll, we'll see more clearly how they shift as we continue. Third word from God about the cross. Look, the very stones were split. For the sake of time, I'm not going to dwell on this one, except to say this is about power, right? Stones, they're supposed to just sit there, all solid and strong, immovable. When the stones start breaking in two and splitting, something very powerful is happening. Fourth word, actually fourth and fifth. Look, 
The tombs are broken open and some of the holy people who had died, their bodies are raised to life. Incredible. When Jesus died on the cross, God began undoing death itself. When Jesus died on the cross, death itself died with him. Death was brought into Jesus and defeated in Jesus. When Jesus died, he took death itself upon himself and death died with him. As one preacher put it, when death stung Jesus Christ, it stung itself to death. On the cross, Jesus defeated death itself. And so in the cross, new life in a new age has begun. Interestingly, with the sixth word, we see that God makes these people who are alive again appear in Jerusalem. These holy people who had died in the past. In other words, these Old Testament people. God shows that Jesus' death on the cross was for them too. He raises them. In other words, the power of the cross, the effect of the cross, reaches backwards as well as forwards to embrace and to gather up those who are victims of death and prisoners of death to set them free and to bring them afresh into life. Now, I realize this raises all sorts of questions. Who were these people who were raised to life? Where did they hang out from Friday when Jesus died until Sunday when Matthew tells us they appeared in the city? And how long did they live after that? And why don't we hear more about them? And the answer is, we don't know. (laughs) Because Matthew does not focus on these other people, but rather Matthew's focus is on Jesus and what Jesus accomplished. And I love what commentator Dale Bruner has to say about this. He says, even on Friday, when Matthew is describing Jesus's death, Matthew can't wait until Easter. He can't wait for Resurrection Sunday. Matthew just can't wait to tell us that Jesus' death opens the way to new life. Okay, moving finally on to the seventh word about the cross. It's down in verse 54. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, look, they were terrified. They were made afraid. And they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. All of this made these brave soldiers terrified. Can you blame them? And what do they conclude? This was no ordinary man that we just killed. This wasn't just some victim. This was someone very special, special to heaven itself. And don't miss the fact that these are the first people after Jesus' death to confess who Jesus really is, the Son of God. And who are these people? Roman soldiers, the enemy, the oppressor, the pagan occupying force, the hated despised ones, the religious outsiders. 
And who else is there to witness all this? Matthew makes a point to tell us in verse 55, many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And just to further underline the importance of them being there as the first witnesses of Jesus' death and its effects, Matthew identifies three of them and spotlights them. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Don't miss the importance of how Matthew paints this picture. Jesus dies on the cross. God speaks seven words to tell us the amazing news of what this means. And the first ones to see it and to recognize what it means are Romans and women who sadly in that day were stratified at the bottom of good, clean, respectable religious society. But the earth has quaked. The very age has turned. Death has been defeated. New life has begun. A new age has been inaugurated. And in this age, those old statuses and stratifications no longer matter. And so we've got to get used to seeing people and treating people in a new way as a result of Jesus' death. Wow. Seven words from God about what the cross accomplished. So what happened when Jesus died? How do we summarize all this? A great victory has taken place. A powerful victory. And like the 4th of July, like a D-Day, but even more so, this decisive victory has changed the very course and trajectory of the entire cosmos. What was wrong with the old age? How would we characterize it? Well, in a word, darkness. Could you feel the darkness? And we still feel the lingering darkness today, don't we? Do you ever feel the darkness when you watch the six o'clock news and you take in all that's been happening in our world? Or maybe you feel the darkness in yourself or you experience it at school or at work or in your family. Because the turning of the ages is a slow process. It began inexorably on the cross, but it's not done turning yet. The old age is ruled by darkness. It's ruled by dark powers. Who are these powers? Well, death is one. Death always has the last word in the old age, doesn't it? Death is an omnipotent ruler. You can avoid him for a while, but always and often too soon, he catches up with you and he swallows you forever. Another dark power of the old age is sin. We can't seem to stop sinning, can we? And our sins separate us from God. Our sins shut us off, shut off heaven from earth. We long for heaven, by which I mean we long for peace. We long for healing and wholeness. We long for life. We long for love, all of which are with God in heaven. But our missteps and our poor choices and our willful rebellion and our insistence on going our own way and figuring out human life on our own terms, all of it pollutes this world 
with innocent blood, with injustice, with strife and chaos and trouble, with stratification between the highs and the lowly, the insiders, the outsiders. And all of it cuts us off from heaven and from God. And we're left on this God-forsaken earth. And a huge impenetrable curtain separates us. Sin, death, the power of darkness, the powers of the old age. But look, Matthew says, look, Jesus died on the cross. And look, the curtain of separation was torn. The earth shook and shifted. The rocks split. The tombs were opened. Godly people of old were raised. They were made to appear. And the Romans were frightened and confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. Look, through the cross, Christ has achieved a great victory. Christ has defeated the powers of the old age. The very ages have begun to turn. The old age has begun dying and the new age has begun rising. And while the ages turn slowly, there is no going back. Victory is inevitable. So let's remember that when we feel discouraged and worried about the darkness in the world. Remember that when you watch the news and you feel afraid that the darkness is winning. Remember that when you pray, thy kingdom come, and you wonder if that prayer means anything. Remember that when you share the good news about Jesus with another person and you wonder if that gospel has any power. Remember that when you are faced with a decision about whether you're going to do the right thing or not. Remember that when you wonder whether making sacrifices for Jesus is worth it and whether it really makes sense to love even your enemies when it's so easy to hate them. Remember that Jesus died on the cross. Look and remember the victory he won. That he has disarmed the dark powers and their time is growing short. The very ages are turning, and there's no stopping it. As 1 John 2.8 puts it, the darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. A powerful victory accomplished on the cross. Let's pray. God, as we hear your word, and as we look at Jesus' death on the cross, I pray that you would increase our faith, increase our understanding and our imagination and our faith in what you have begun, that we would have hope, that we would have courage, that we would have love, and that we would have good news to share in a world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.